Welcome back to Presenting the Past, a podcast series exploring the digitized collections of public radio and television in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, otherwise known as the AAPB. I'm Christine Becker, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, Theater at the University of Notre Dame and co-host of the ACA Media podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. The AAPB website features over 66,000 public radio and television items streaming online, and this podcast brings you conversations with the researchers, scholars, educators, and media producers who have used that archival material and they share their insights about what they have found or in some cases donated um, because that is relevant to my guest for this episode, Gene Walkinshaw, a television producer and documentary filmmaker who has worked in the Pacific Northwest for over 50 years, documenting the lives, cultures, and peoples of the area and beyond and revealing issues tied to art, literature, and history through the eyes of the individuals involved. She began her TV career at the commercial station King TV in Seattle in the 1960s and produced a pioneering weekly interview show called Face to Face, which was hosted by African-American educator and actress Roberta Bird and was one of the first local programs to address minority-focused issues and race relations, as well as a variety of hot-button issues of the day. In 1970, she moved on to Seattle's public television station KCTS, where she eventually became a senior producer and produced more than 40 documentaries for local, national, and international audiences, many of which were focused on notable artists, writers, and cultural themes of the Pacific Northwest region. She was the first female producer inducted into the Northwest chapter of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Silver Circle. And in 2019, she was inducted into the Gold Circle for her outstanding contributions to the television industry and community uh, in a career that spanned a half a century. She's also won 23 major awards, including eight Northwest Regional Emmy Awards, the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting Award. The AAPB website houses the Jean Walkinshaw Collection, thanks to the digitization of her materials by Seattle College's Cable Television. It spans the years 1972 to 2008 and includes 44 documentaries. So I'm really excited to talk about some of the crown jewels in that collection with Jean herself and get insights into the creative passions that have driven her career and the storytelling decisions that went into making this incredible material. So thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me, Jean. Oh, well, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm so grateful to American Archives of Public Broadcasting for doing what they're doing for me. My gosh, I mean, that's the dream of any producer, to have their work uh, archived, because it's so important to collect uh, all this wonderful stuff that we've done over all these years. So I'm particularly grateful to all of you. Well, and I'm so excited to be able to point our listeners toward um, some of your, your greatest work and really learn a lot of the insights behind it. So can you take us back to the early years of your career then and, and what motivated you to get involved with television and documentary filmmaking in the 60s and 70s? Now, remember, I'm 96 years old now, <laughs> or 95, going on 96. So I was here before television was even an item. <laughs> and uh, when it first came in to being... I was very disdainful of it and thought, oh, my gosh, you know, the written word is the only way we can learn. And, but then the head of the NBC affiliate here, Stim Bullet, it was King Television, and they were the early uh, funders of public television in the Northwest. And he came to my door one day and asked me if I'd come down and interview for a little show they were doing. And I was a disaster on camera, I felt. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. And I quit in a huff. 
and uh, went to the University of Washington to take television production. Because by then, I really thought, oh, my goodness, this is kind of a powerful media. And Mike Wallace was my kind of idol at that time because 60 Minutes was just getting going. And I looked for an on-air person, and we found Roberta Bird Barr. And Roberta had a gorgeous voice. She was black and very, very acerbic, (laughs) but she really knew how to communicate through that lens. So I decided, well, boy, Jean, you just get yourself off camera and stand behind (laughs) and produce. So that's how I got in to uh, the whole thing. So we did go to King, and we were on King for, I think, six years and produced Face to Face, which was the first show I produced. And it was a show that had tremendous reception because people were really interested in, oh, my goodness, a black person on television. Wow. Mm. You know, and, and on top of that, a black woman? Come on. So it was uh, wonderfully received in the community. We had a five o'clock in the evening time slot. And we actually ended up outrating some of the big boys on the East Coast who were doing television so that it really served a wonderful purpose in our community. Uh, It started actually with the uh, poverty program of Johnson's. And our idea was to talk to all people in need, including poor whites. And Roberta was very much of an integrationist in those days. And so that our program included everybody, including Indians. And so we were kind of ahead of the game in doing all that. And uh, according to the Columbia School of Survey Broadcast Journalism, 1968 to 1969 report on national media, they wrote, face-to-face represents the only local attempt at a consistent report of attitudes of minority people including Indians. So that show has given me tremendous satisfaction. Then you went to KCTS and in, in 1972 produced a series called Faces of the City, which yes. sounds like it really built on some of those initial ideas of face-to-face, but yes. um, was also inspired by Studs Terkel's work on everyday Americans. And, and so the series looked at the lives of lesser-known people in Seattle. Oh, yeah. uh, profiles included a taxi driver, a garbage man, African-American airline stewardess. What can you tell us about that series and how that, as I said, kind of built on what you had initially started with something like face-to-face and looking at the, the kind of the extraordinary within ordinary lives? Well, actually, I think some of those shows I did, I've looked back at them and I think, oh my goodness, I haven't progressed very much (laughs) because uh, I was forced at that time because film was so expensive to do audio interviews only. And so I became very familiar with the whole editing of audio. And that has lasted me all my, for all my production career in that it's the basic thing that I use on which to build the whole show. So I learned to edit with a razor blade and a Nagra <laughs> uh, machine. And the the person who's with me, the cameraman, it taught me how to get along with the cameraman too, believe me. We would 
do the interview only, and then he'd go back and do interpretive video over it. Ah, okay. Yeah. Then we'd bring it home and combine the audio with the video. And also at that point, I really listened and watched Studs Terkel interview. He was unbelievably good, I thought. And so to become as unobtrusive as you can in walking into somebody's house. And Stud said often that he would purposely <laughs> make the uh, tape recorder not work or have trouble with it just to put the person at ease. And so they felt they had some control. So I would always edit my voice out completely out of the interview and step back because I wanted to really, really let that person speak for themselves. I think so many interviewers have a preconceived notion of what people are going to say. And they go in with their questions, they ask their question, and they look down at their notes. They don't even follow the lead that that person has given to them, which leads them into a much more interesting part of their lives than maybe they realized that they could have anticipated. So I learned to really, really listen to the person and would, of course, I'd have a kind of an outline of what I hoped they would say, but I would let them lead. And so that was, uh, that was wonderful training for me. One of my favorite was a bartender down in Pioneer Square, and he worked with the longshoremen and all. And he was quite critical of those people uptown who did thus and so. And he, he was just wonderful. And so I then also got the determination always, when possible, not to necessarily talk to the top of the agency or the top of the whatever. And I, I did some very notable people. Uh, so I didn't always follow that. But when possible... I would try to talk to the people down the line who are doing the actual work in the field. Well, and it certainly sounds like you had a motivation to give a voice to people who might not otherwise have it and give a platform to people who might otherwise uh, have it. So either minorities or, again, kind of ordinary people. and, And as you said, let them speak for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, into the 1980s, you had another really interesting series. And again, I think there's a through line here of, of not just people in the moment giving them voice, but even kind of looking back in the past and, and letting kind of history speak for itself as well. And so you had a, in commemoration of Washington State Centennial Year, a late 1980s series called Celebrate the Women, which was a series of short programs profiling some of the women who had shaped the state's history. So that included suffragist Mae Hutton, athlete Helen Thayer, and Roberta Byrd, who you worked on face to face with. Well, Celebrate the Women was just a wonderful, wonderful series to be able to be asked to do. And I executive produced it. And actually, that was my first experience at executive producing, because I like to be boss, boss. Anyway, (laughs) one person was Helma Ward, a member of the Macaw Indian tribe. And that just lent itself to some gorgeous scenery, because on the westernmost tip of the U.S., their reservation is. And another one was Mary Walker, who was an early... (laughs) She was the wife of a minister who came out, and she had extensive diaries of coming out with a, well, when the wagon trains were coming west. And she and Mr. Walker, uh, she joined him to come out in a wagon train and had these wonderful, wonderful diaries. 
And uh, there was one quote I, I loved. She says, I feel so tired of Mr. Walker. This was her husband. He <laughs> seems to think a lot more of Mrs. Smith than me. Oh, goodness. He spends a lot more time in her society than mine. I feel that I'm cruelly neglected. And uh, so that, and this I did with a lot of interpretive video because there were these stark scenes of going across the plains. So it was all interpretive video over this. And I had a lot of fun with thistles and things where she talked about her husband. And so it lent itself to uh, letting me do what I try to develop, use interpretive video rather than always putting a person on camera talking. Mm -hmm. And then another one was Helen Thayer. Oh, my gosh. She came to the station, or I heard about her, and she had a dog that she was going to go to the North Pole with alone. <laughs> wow. And actually, when she came, she had done this, and she had slides of her experience. And it was hard for me to believe it, you know, that a woman alone with the polar bears and all uh, <laughs> would go to the North Pole. But, my gosh, she had. And she was an Australian who was a, had been in the Olympics, and she was a very, very strong person. She went on to do all these unbelievable things by herself. Uh, so she told her story. That was a, a lucky break for me because uh, all that material was out there to be shown and used. And she was very articulate. And so, oh, my goodness, she just had you sitting on the edge of your seat wondering if a polar bear was going to come and, <laughs> and attack her in the night when she was up there on that cold ice all by herself. Well, and another thread is I'm also picturing your own, your career building, your your skills building as you're kind of learning more about the power of television. Sort of fascinating. You start in a place of disdain for television. You learn how to make it yourself. And then you are truly an innovator of documentary filmmaking. And that, you know, ends up then winning you, of course, awards, including the uh, 1991 Robert F. Kennedy Award for Journalism for Children of the Homeless, uh, which is a half hour documentary exploring the children's experiences of homelessness from their perspective. So that seems like a particularly important culmination of your career? Well, it certainly was. Oh, my gosh. We went back to the Kennedy's home, and <laughs> my husband came with me. And my husband, I just can't talk about my career without him, because mm. he really, really, really gave me ideas and was there for me and a steady person and was very much involved. And actually, it was he who, who suggested Studs Terkel, um, to me. He'd been in the State Department. And he felt very much at home with <laughs> diplomatic circles and so forth, which I didn't. And so when I went back to the Kennedy's house, I walked in and I saw my, my show being shown on the table and I burst into tears. Oh, wow. And, and there was Ethel standing right there mm. wondering, what is wrong with this lady? And Walt sort of nudged me and said, honey, you know, so I did pull myself together. But it was mainly an award given mainly to the print media. And people thought, who is this Jean Walkinshaw and Diane Sawyer? <laughs> she was the other one to win that year. And so I felt really, really, really excited to be part of the Kennedy Awards, yes. What did people connect with in that documentary so much, do you think? Oh, my goodness. I think we were early on with the problems of homelessness. 
And I had these lovely, lovely people, many of them, though, who, you know, they were addicted, a lot of them, and pretty difficult lives they lived, and their children. Oh, it was a very, very stretching experience for me, particularly in this matter of using kids on the air. And I have very mixed emotions about that show because I did show these children, and I'm not sure it was quite the right thing to do, but that was the only way, really, of getting people to realize the depth of the problem. Right. And uh, if I were to do it again, I don't know whether I'd put the children on camera or not, Mm -hmm. but um, it was a hugely uh, satisfying show to have done because it was one of the first on homelessness in the nation. Then on top of that, it was on the children. There's such a fine line between invading a person's privacy and yet getting the full story. Right. And I still am caught trying to think, well, where is that line? There was one one interview I did, and this is another show. It was a very, very attractive, marvelous woman who was an actress, and she wrote a show about seeing the face of Jesus in her crystal ball above her dance floor. (laughs) She was an exotic dancer in it, and she was really just a kick. But she did a lot of anti-nuclear shows, too. And I I thought, oh, this is certainly a, a novel way of talking about the horrors of the bomb. So I did a a long piece with her, an hour documentary with her. And in the process, I wanted to catch her personality. Well, yeah, I think she really felt I was moving in on her too much. But then after the show came out and she saw it, she said, you know, you saw through me and yet you celebrated me. Wow. And that was one of the nicest compliments I ever got. Because I would press to get people. I don't like to do puff pieces. And I did a lot of pieces on people. And it's so presumptuous to even do that. Now that I'm on the other side of the (laughs) camera, oh boy, I just find it's very hard to have people, you know, that balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's something that I think uh, all producers have to wrestle with. I've I've just been amazed that I've lucked through and not had, uh, actually, when I think about it, Rebecca was the only one that I had any real problems with as to, well, no, that's not true. Um, (laughs) With Tess Gallagher, who's the wife of Raymond Carver, the famous short story writer, I did a piece on Raymond Carver. And I got a big grant. It was one of my bigger grants from the National Endowment for the Arts. And I was very, very excited about it. In my application for the grant, I had said that I would include Marianne Carver in the show because she was the first wife of Raymond Carver. And um, Tess Gallagher was his second wife. And Tess had helped me with the grant a great deal setting me up with famous people to interview. So I I felt very beholden to her. But when it came time to do the actual documentary and we got the money, Tess said I couldn't do it with Marianne. If if I did the documentary, 
and she was in it, she would not be in it with Marianne. And oh my gosh, that was a big deal for me because I, I really felt that it was necessary to do that, to tell his story. And so it came to the lawyers, got into the whole thing, and oh dear, it was 11 o'clock at night, and we'd sent it midnight deadline, and I was holding firm because I think sometimes you have to in the what you want to do with revealing and telling about an author, for instance. But about 11 o'clock, Tess called and said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Wow. And so we saved the grant, but I thought, oh my gosh, here, what a bruja this is going to be. Mm. And then the BBC had done a piece on Raymond Carver also, but when Altman wanted, uh, Robert Altman did a, a movie based on Carver's short story, and he needed biography, well, guess what Tess sent him? She said in my biography, it said the BBC. Oh, and wow. that really pleased me, and bless her. I mean, I can understand her not wanting to have Mary Ann in it, but um, I think once she saw that the context and the way it was, and we ended up being very dear friends. Well, and that uh, was part of a series called Remarkable People in 1993. And the Seattle Times said about that series, it was not only a valuable contribution to intelligent viewing, but also provides a historical record for the future, which that itself sounds like it could be also a, a billing for your entire archive on the AAPB. Um, <laughs> but I think one thing that comes to mind about what you're talking about is that you were able to find kind of the complexity behind people. And so no one's all amazing and no one's all terrible. There's there's complexities in people. And your yes. documentaries kind of really dug into that. And I assume the subjects probably appreciated that kind of portrayal. Yes, I think so. Another portrait I did was Charles Johnson, who is the National Book Award winner. He's black. And uh, that was a wonderful show to do. Uh, he wrote Middle Passages, won the National Book Award. And his story was so different from what we were hearing from so many of the blacks, because he was brought up in Chicago, Evanston, in an integrated neighborhood. And then he was a cartoonist, and he had a great sense of humor. And he came west and became part of the community here in Seattle. And he loved the Northwest. And he just kind of showed the way in which we look to Asia for, because he became a great follower of Zen and martial arts. He was a marvelous person in martial arts, Tai Chi, and meditation. And so I love doing his story because he kind of spoke for me as to my feelings about meditation. And he also was extremely disciplined writer. And he did believe in rewriting and rewriting. And oh my gosh, when you edit a show, you go over it and change it. And, and so he always made me feel better that I needed to go over my show so many <laughs> times. And he, he was incredibly, or he is, he still is, uh, an important figure here in our Northwest. So I love doing his, but you know, I love doing every show. Somebody asked me once, which is your favorite show? And I said, you're, that's like asking you, which is your favorite kid? Because I have three children and they've been very important to me in doing my work. Actually, you know, my work comes out of my life and I am so lucky 
with my life. <laughs> and I was very much of a Northwesterner. I married a man who came back here because he loved the Northwest and the outdoors. And I was brought up camping and hiking. And then I had the, I shouldn't say it's the good fortune, but I, I consider for me it was to uh, go to Japan just after the bomb in Hiroshima with Houses for Hiroshima. So that gave me a perception of Japan and looking westward, which on the East Coast, of course, you all look to Europe so much more. But we out here have looked to Asia. And it's interesting because I think just more recently, people have realized, oh my gosh, Asia is interesting after <laughs> all. And so I love doing pieces uh, with and about Japan. And my experience with Japan really affected my aesthetics mm. uh, because they believed in, in sympathy and nature so much. So I really studied a lot of their tenets and, and so forth and the simplicity and the directness of expression and so forth, which was crossed into to my work. So I don't meditate that much, but I certainly am one to try to live in the moment and let things happen to me, which do. I mean, I didn't, for instance, with the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, yes, I certainly helped get the work together, but in no way did I realize what kind of extensive material you'd want and put up on the the internet. I just can't believe that you can see all my shows as you do, and they're beautiful in the way they were digitized. And I just can't tell you how much it's meant to me, because, uh, you know, it, it, there's kind of a East-West still. I think we, we out in there in the West have kind of an inferiority complex. And we always have to look east for that affirmation. I'm still that way. I mean, I, I'm so excited that, oh, my God, uh, <laughs> Boston wants this. They <laughs> thought it was okay. And uh, it's just interesting, that whole Western aesthetic. My sister was a, a painter, and my husband's mother was a fairly well-known Northwest artist, too. And so that uh, I grew up in a household fighting for recognition in the art world. So that it's, it's uh, just unbelievable to me that it's all come my way. Well, we've talked a lot about your films about people, but um, a couple of your films about places are also really important, especially in terms of what you've talked about in the idea of like aesthetic beauty. So yes. um, two films from the late 1990s, perhaps your most famous film, the 1990 documentary Rainier the Mountain about uh, Mount Rainier National Park. And that was the first high definition programming on KCTS. But you've personally said you favor the 1996 documentary The River, which follows the Columbia River from its headwaters in Canada to the Pacific Ocean. And uh, Joel Connolly of the Seattle Post and Intelligencer wrote of the river, rarely has an hour of television gone into such depths with such grace. The river shows that history does not need to be dull and resources do not need to be dry. So you've made these incredible documents of the beauty of the Pacific Northwest as well, the, the scenery, not just the people. Yes. And that quote of Joel Connolly is probably one of the ones that have encouraged me to keep going. Mm. I mean, it's just terrific that he got it, period. <laughs> and uh, yes, the river, I felt, had all the elements to make good television. 
you had that river that gave you your storyline following the river, the people living on the banks of the river I featured. And it started in, I kept saying, the Columbia's flowing the wrong way. Where is it? <laughs> because it, it makes a big horseshoe up into Canada then crosses the border and comes down into Washington State and then goes out to the ocean. So we had all sorts of wonderful, wonderful scenery along the way. And we had Woody Guthrie music to play that really told the story of the river for us. And uh, as we wandered down the river, there were all sorts of interesting people along the way including historic figures, to be included in it. And then uh, the aesthetics, of course. I mean, beautiful, beautiful scenery. I, I, I did one show, which it was after I came back from Hiroshima, and I was very much of a peacenik after that. And um, I did a show with a darling, wonderful woman who since went back to be one of the top editors for Frontline. And she interned with me. And so I had this uh, show, we called it Trident Super Sub or Dinosaur. And uh, it was, of course, you know, of course, totally objective with regard to our feeling about Trident Super Sub. And so that she and I did it. And oh my gosh, I interviewed the head of the, all the submarines back at the Pentagon and the congressman and and people from the UN and a whole bit. I mean, we did a lot, a lot of interviews. And she helped me put it together. And I never felt it was one of my better shows. It was too didactic. It was too uh, heavy-handed. And at that point, I thought, golly, you know, there are other ways of getting people to be interested in conservation, for instance. And that has been one of the keys of my efforts of being, a, my husband was a very, very strong, early on, uh, worried about setting aside land and, and what was happening to our West. So that I, I've been a conservationist all my life, uh, pretty much. Well, and then the film Mountain Climbers, is also, that also relevant to this, this topic? Oh my, yes, yes. Uh, I had the good fortune of being in on the early, early climbers here in our, in our Northwest. I think I did four stories on mountain climbers. And the filmmaker who did all the filming of those great early films of mountain climbing became a, a very, very good friend and let me use all of his footage. So I had this fabulous footage to be able to use in telling the story of mountain climbers. And uh, so that was... Uh, something that I really benefited from. And Jim Whitaker, who was the first American to climb Mount Everest, became a good friend. After I, I did the story on him, it won the CPB Best Local Production story. And th these are the comments that were made. There are mountain climbing profiles done, but this one is very special. I was frightened, repulsed, <laughs> confused, and made to respect the love all involved. And there is where I got fascinated with why do people do something like that? Yeah. And I, I'd done two stories on Jim Whitaker. The last one I did, I think, is one of the more interesting profiles. 
that I did. And he and his marvelous wife, who's also a climber, were very, very open about some of the problems they had. In number one, she being the first woman to really be in the Himalayas, they were very open about the fact that they went into a business and got really burned by their manager and found that he was misappropriating funds. Uh, So they came near bankruptcy, and they finally decided they would go and live on their boat. So I had not only the mountain climbing footage, but I also had this wonderful footage they took of the year and a half they spent on their boat with two two teenage kids. (laughs) And uh, I must say that Jim is a real hero in my mind, Jim Whitaker. I, I really, really... Uh, do admire him, and more so maybe even his wife, Diane. So it's been wonderful to have them in my life. That's that's one thing about producing is that you just, oh gosh, the marvelous people I've become friends with. And I feel bad about some of them I hadn't been able to follow up and be a personal friend with, uh, because you just can't encompass all the people that you're so fortunate to get to know. And then my colleagues, now that I'm 95 years old, oh my goodness, the way they have been so supportive. And, you know, it's not until these last 12 years that my work has been really recognized. And it was almost thrown away and in a garbage can. And the librarian rescued it and called me and said, hey, Jean, they're getting rid of all your tapes. Or do you want to do something about it? So there are... When was this and which was this a librarian saved it? Uh, this was when I was at the public television station and they got into real financial problems mm, okay. for a few years. And they got a new manager who took over and was trying to save money. And so he was trying to clean out Oh. And I got a call from this librarian saying, hey, Jean, you know. And so it, they were so close to being lost. Wow. And uh, actually, it was brought to her attention because the janitor found an important tape in the garbage. Oh, my gosh. Uh, literally. And it was on Alan Hovannis, the famous composer I did. And they were dying for material on Alan because they were opening up a museum in Armenia. And the janitor recognized this and thought, hmm, you know, that that shouldn't be there. So he got it and took the reel. It was when it was, we, were, it, we were doing reel-to-reel videotaping. And uh, he took it up and put it in the attic of KCTS so it would be saved. Huh. And he alerted the librarian to what was happening. Well, she knew that this was happening. And so, you know, it's just all these near catastrophes with my work that it sat here without any real recognition for so long. Mm. And then to have you, all you people back there, (laughs) excited about it. And, oh, my goodness, Casey Davis Kaufman, I I just... (laughs) Uh, she's meant so much to me that she was the one who I think really recognized the value of these shows. Because you see, I was the first documentary maker here 
And because I was so lucky when I was born and when I came into this world. And I feel that I just kind of live with all these wonderful things happening to me if I just look for them. And so I honestly do feel that I'm living under a special star these days <laughs> in that all this has happened to me after actually, actually my husband died. And I thought, oh, wow, my life has ended there. <laughs> but that was 12 years ago. And then my whole life has taken on this whole new, wonderful rejuvenation and excitement. And I have continued producing and uh, so that there are stories that I will ultimately release. But I, you know, everybody when they're old does their autobiography or their, their <laughs> memoirs. Um, and I'm one of them. And so I did a video memoir using a lot of this material that we've just talked about in telling the story behind it and the funny things that happened and so forth. And so I've been working on that for eight years. And plus, then I got interested in, I had a crazy mother who was uh, went to Egypt early on by herself and traveled uh, the world. So she has always been an example for me because she did all this after she raised kids and she was 70 and she started to travel and she traveled for the next 15 years. And sometimes even when she was in a wheelchair, she'd go places <laughs> like, like India, uh, knowing that she would be able to land and there'd be somebody there to help her. She's been an example for me to keep going, even though I am really very old. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a remarkable symmetry, or maybe it's even karma, that you began your career looking at the lives of ordinary people and giving them a platform and a voice. And then, you know, near the end of the career, a librarian and a janitor, you know, saved yes. your work. And if it weren't for them <laughs> saving your work, you know, so if they, they return the favor, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, at one point, at the station, they were, I was told I couldn't have any good copies of my show because I refused to sign a, a to me it was a very, very badly thought out release that you had to sign if you were going to get your pay. And uh, I refused to sign it because I thought it was, because uh, you said you'd never criticize any of the uh, people in the station mm. or any of the financial officers or anybody. And actually, I think it was written by a Boeing attorney who, uh, and that's fine, that's right for secret material that Boeing was working on, but I felt, my gosh, public television. And it started, of course, with wanting to help different communities start their own television, and it was totally transparent. And this, to me, was the antithesis of being transparent. So I refused to sign. And so I've been kind of a strange person to have to deal with with regard to the station. But they have been good in that they have released my shows finally and after they were saved. Um, oh, and then when when I was told I couldn't have any good copies of my shows, guess what? On my back porch started arriving these cans with my shows in them. Really? And people were, yeah. And uh, most people at the station didn't want to sign this uh, statement because 
they needed the money. So I still haven't gotten my <laughs> my severance pay, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay with me. It's just been a fascinating, wonderful, wonderful life for me. <laughs> Well, and that's, you know, always one of the fraught issues of making art and making, uh, you know, public media is funding it and then, you know, money to preserve it. And so I'm, I'm really grateful myself as well that the AAPB has provided a platform for your work so people can watch things like The River and Children of the Homeless and, and uh, celebrate the women today. Well, I certainly celebrate them and I, I just can't get over. Oh, the other thing that I found so wonderful was that they put up the... Uh, field tapes, which are interviews I did with people before I made the ultimate show. Ah. So they not only have the shows, but they have all these marvelous, to my way of thinking, uh, the, the fact that they were saved, these interviews, the raw tapes that I did. And that is a huge plus that I, I really wasn't aware that they would be so uh, helpful and actually, now that I, I've listened to a couple of them, and I think, oh, dear me, you know, that's much more interesting than my show. <laughs> and I wish I could go back and pick up the, <laughs> some of those things that were left on the floor. That's an aspect of this collection which uh, just makes me feel so happy. Yeah, and especially, again, your original attention to provide people a voice. And so that sort of uncut voice now is, is still available. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so they not only have interviews with uh, people who normally you don't hear from, but also some that I was lucky enough to do and interviews, such as Thomas Wolfe for for the Carver Show and the head of the New Yorker and so forth. Uh, so there are those raw tapes also, which are there and you can see them and they've got a picture of what they are and a description of them. And it goes on and on. I can't believe the amount of material that they put up. And it is so unbelievably satisfying <laughs> for me to know that this is saved at the Library of Congress. Oh, my goodness. You know, what more can anybody ask? And so I just feel so fortunate that Casey uh, decided, hmm, you know, maybe this is interesting out there in that West and made this collection and saw to it that things weren't lost. And I feel like maybe we've seeded the idea for a dissertation for someone. I can imagine some young scholars out there really being excited about the idea of having raw interviews to listen to and then to see what, you know, the finished documentaries look like and to write about that creative process. Well, it's been such a wonderful, wonderful for me to be able to talk about it. And I want to thank you so much, all of you. Well, and thank you for your time and thank you for your remarkable memories. Just an incredible store of experiences you've had and it's so wonderful to be able to, uh, to talk to you about them. Well, I do much better on the past than I do on the present. <laughs> Don't ask me where I left my glasses, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye-bye. And so to our listeners, please do go enjoy the work in the Gene Walkinshaw collection at AmericanArchive.org. And you can find links to more information about what we've discussed in today's podcast at AmericanArchive.org and aca And thank you for listening. 
I'd also like to thank sound engineer Todd Thompson at the University of Texas at Austin for his post-production work on this podcast and for composing our theme music. Thank you to Bill Kirkpatrick at University of Winnipeg for his assistance with distributing this podcast. And thank you to Rin Marchese at the AAPB for her help with planning and organizing these podcasts. Please join us next month for another deep dive into the digital resources of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. 